Hello once again, ladies and gentlemen, as we come here for part three, another history-making episode in the Wit and Whiskey cast. Uh, we're sticking around in Prohibition just one more week, so hopefully you're not all that burned out about it. I, of course, am one of your co-hosts, Marcus City Jr., as always, with the uh, lime to my gin Ricky, DJ Gag. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> See, that was nice, because that means you had the flavor. It's true. You're just you're just the bitter Christmas flavors. I am. I am just a bitter historian for these past three weeks talking about how we need to not ban booze. Uh, but no, it's it's going to be exciting. We're going to finish up. It's going to be a much lighter topic. It's still going to be historical, but it's going to be historical about something fun, about the seedy criminal underbelly that became one of America's most cherished institutions. Right. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, what did you do this week? We, uh, I finally got a chance to meet my niece this weekend in person, which was really nice. I, I did see the pictures. Um, I'm very glad she gets all of her genes from her mother. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so that's a good thing. Uh, I, it, it was really funny. Um, I'm slightly jealous of Holly because I held Gemma and she looked at me with this, like, who the hell are you face and her fists are all clenched. She looked, you know, Holly holds her and she's looking up at Holly like, Oh my God, it's another girl. And I was like, damn it, Gemma, come on. <laughs> uh, but no, she was super cute. She was super fun to hold. I mean, I, I, she kind of fell asleep in my chest for like 20 minutes and then finally peed and decided to cry. So I, I handed her back, but it, it was good. It was some good bonding time. Um, my, my it sounds brother, like the last time you and I got together. Right? You held me, I peed and then cried and went to bed. Yeah. It's 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 fairly accurate though, <laughs> but no, it was great. I um I, I lamented the fact that they they live uh, a little bit further away than I'd like, but we uh, we did find a really cute little bed and breakfast that's l- like two minutes away from their apartment. So uh, we might actually take uh, some long weekends this this summer and, and go up and visit with them and kind of stay and, and see see how things go. Um, I, I think it's going to be an eventful winter this year. But other than that, not too much. Um, you know, just work madness as always. I'm looking forward to having a week off in a few weeks. So that'll be really nice. How about you, dude? Uh, you know, I didn't float away. Uh, a day after <laughs> we recorded the last episode, we got just under seven inches of rain. Uh, I sent you some pictures that the 1821 studios became lakefront property here last week, which was uh, pretty ridiculous. You know, my nice little side yard, which is a terrible bog, the trailer and the roadster and everything were inaccessible. And it, it was crazy. That Wednesday, it literally rained for something like 30, it's like 34 hours straight. And it ended uh, late at night. Woke up the next morning. It was bright, sunny, and 75. And if there wasn't 16 feet of water on everything, you never would have known. It was just bizarre. <laughs> Uh, bracing for it again, you know, as we record this, um, it looks like about two and a half, three hours, we're supposed to start raining again, and it's going to rain all day tomorrow, but we're only supposed to get an inch and a half tomorrow. So, uh, apparently every Wednesday, you know, what was it on Wednesdays we were pink? Was that the Mean Girls thing? Mm-hmm. On Wednesdays, it rains in inches. Uh, so to, to give our listeners an idea, if we converted that rain to snow, that would have been about seven and a half feet of snow. Yeah, in one day. So, uh, and I don't live in the mountains of Montana, 
at least not yet. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it is what it is. We'll, we'll make do and we'll go from there, I suppose. But we're here. We're still kicking. Uh, they're, they're not going to get, they're not going to kill us yet. God damn it. <laughs> Speaking of trying to kill us, <laughs> what are you drinking this week? <laughs> well, counting, we are, uh, we're covering today, uh, you know, towards the end of, uh, prohibition. I decided to try on a, a classic cocktail from the fifties uh, called a Black Hawk, uh, and a Black Hawk is a two to one cocktail with rye whiskey and slow gin, and uh, it's I. Right. Uh, it's not my favorite. <laughs> um, I it, it's rye and it's slow gin and it, it's. Quite an interesting combination of the two. It does have a cherry in there, uh, so if I ever get to the bottom of this, I'll have a nice tasty treat for myself. Um, I found a few different recipes of the Black Hawk in different cocktail books that I was researching. Some of them had like a, a two-to-one, some of them had a one-to-one. I, I thought one-to-one might be a little too overpowering uh, with the slow gin, so I, I went with the two-to-one. It, it's pretty good. Um, slow gin is, uh, most commonly known today as the main ingredient in a slow gin fizz. Uh, and it's made from slow berries, uh, not, it's not actually gin. It's a, it's a cordial. Um, it's pretty good. I, I don't know that I would drink this regularly and it is a, a violent, like brown purple color. I just don't know why we have to knock the alleged intelligence level of any type of fruit. <laughs> God damn it, Mark Whiskey almost came out of my nose. <laughs> it's slow S L O E. It's apparently oh, okay. a a European uh, berry that is a little bit more common in, in British culture rather than American. I, I've never seen, tasted, or heard of it uh, other than alcohol. So it's it, it's fine. It's a fine cocktail. I used wild turkey rye just in case the cocktail was terrible. I wouldn't feel bad. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, hey, speaking of somebody who likes wild turkey rye, but okay, <laughs> I'll allow it. You know, God, we're what, 55 episodes in, you're still busting my balls about that. <laughs> what are you drinking? Well, I, you know, you have kind of set the stage. You've had a nice running theme for these three-parters. Uh, you did two alcohol-free reviews. I sort of, you know, latched onto that last week and reviewed the coffee, uh, you had said, you know, let's let's try to look up some of these cocktails, and you're finding all these just absolutely ridiculous cocktails. Well, yeah. I just thought I would go to, you know, bare bones early prohibition. So, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23, somewhere in that range. And uh, so you're bad hooch, uh, a lot of either sugar or citrus or both to cover up the taste of bad hooch. And bubbles, they love their bubbly. You know, you had mentioned slow gin fizz. Uh, fizzes of all varieties were a big thing. Champagne was big, if you could get it from the Canadian border. So I took a punt and went with a classic Prohibition cocktail, the Gin Ricky. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the other thing when you talk in the 20s. Everything's in threes, and this is only three pots, see? Uh, you have gin, you have club soda for your little bubbly, and then you have lime juice. And I made it in traditional fashion. Uh, it said, fill the glass with club soda, filled the glass with club soda. So many dashes of lime juice, just like bitters. So many dashes of lime juice, just like bitters. 
I did actually pour out the gin and jiggers, though. And it's not bad. I mean, I like gin and I like lime. Mm-hmm. It's just it's so much gin and it's so much lime. <laughs> it's basically like a, a pine cone floating in a sea of sour Jolly Ranchers with bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fair. Um, I, this is a, a cocktail that I weirdly find is better balanced as a mocktail. Uh, because oh, I could absolutely see that. When, when they do it as a mocktail, it, you usually see it on, like, you know, the kids' menu as a lime ricky, and uh, they they add some sort of sweetener, like a simple syrup, to it, and they take out the gin. So, like, the it's literally just lime juice, simple syrup, and, and soda water. And it's it's a pretty good drink. Uh, I sometimes see people add a little bit of grenadine um, to kind of do, like, the fake cherry lime Ricky. Um, Yeah, I don't know what it is about the gin Ricky that they just... I think they missed the boat on on balancing the sweetness of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... I could see where if you're running a speakeasy, I could see why you'd be making a lot of these. It's simple. It's relatively cheap. You could make a lot of them quickly. You could make them in big batches. I mean, I actually made it in a different glass and then poured it into one of my new brandy sifters that my father-in-law got me for this show, actually. He got me four massive brandy sifters to do this show. So, you know, I mixed it up in another, another glass, poured it into the brandy sifter. So, I mean, I, I could see why you'd want to do it, and it's by far not the worst drink I've ever had in my life, but it's uh, intense, I would say, is the best word for it. Oh, it is. It, it kicks you under the table. But it is what it is. <laughs> Speaking of highly flammable liquids, I actually have a pretty interesting thing for Whiskey News this week. Do you now? I'm just going to jump in because that was too good of a segue to pass up. <laughs> So uh, we all know scotch. We all know our our (laughs) Scottish distilleries. Uh, We're all familiar with Glenfiddich, yes, of course. Well, guess what they're running their delivery trucks on now, their local delivery trucks in Scotland, DJ. What do you think they're powering it with now? Well, we did establish earlier in the podcast that scotch is like one of the greenest things in the world to produce. So I don't know, like bog literal bog water (laughs) (laughs) well the headline says that they're using their own whiskey to fuel its delivery trucks and they are (laughs) sort of (laughs) that's intense (laughs) (laughs) because as you say scotch is one of the most eco-friendly things to produce that being said only 10 to 15% of what actually comes out of the distillery is ever actually bottled and sold to the consumer. Huh. Now, a lot of the other uh, quote-unquote waste products you could recycle and use for different things. You know, you have runoff, you could clean the water, you could do this, that, and the other thing. Well, what Glenfiddich has started doing now is they are taking what they call draft, D-R-A-F-F. It's spent barley grains, uh, it's leftover bog water, it's not so much a lot of the peat. They try to cut that off because they try to do, uh, you know, recycle and upcycle the peat and things. But the the grains and the uh, the bog water they actually turn into a biofuel, and they have converted their diesel 
delivery trucks to sort of run on this the same way that here in America we're trying to convert them to run on French fry oil. Same concept, different flammable material. And so in their press release, uh, their site leader, uh, Ms. Christy Deegan, says, we now have vehicles that we can use to transport our goods and our spirits around the country that comes from a 100% renewable source and is ultra-low carbon. Uh, they claim that the biofuel reduces their carbon monoxide emissions by 95%. Uh, and they hope to have its entire fleet converted by the end of next year. This is actually being used as a trial for the overall Scotch Whiskey Distillers Association, the big governing organization for all Scotch. And they want all their distilleries to switch over by the year 2040. Whoa. So uh, keep your eyes on this, because this could actually be something very big in the future. That's amazing. Yeah, I was pretty stoked when I read it, actually. That, that's one of the coolest things I, I think you've done with Whiskey News. I was really excited, and it fits the theme for this week perfectly. It really does. <laughs> it's so amazing. What are we doing for Tools of the Trade? Well, I figured I would finally cover uh, one of the like non-cocktail pieces of bar equipment. You know, we 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 both have joked about the the grape bricks from vineyards uh, <laughs> it, that came out during Prohibition, and I thought, you know, kind of talking about how that was tongue in cheek and how everyone really talks about liquor during Prohibition. There's less talk about. You know, we talked about beer in terms of that, like, weird 1% table beer. We talked about how you could, like, cheekily make your own wine. Um, but with all of the, like, shadow importing of things and all of that good stuff happening in Prohibition, there must have been some wine around. So I figured I'd talk about corkscrews in a roundabout way. Oh, okay, I could dig it. Uh, so with corkscrews as part of your bar equipment, there's so many different kinds, right? There's uh, electric ones there's uh the old school ones that it was literally just screw it in and then pull out uh, you know look they, it looked like a puncture knife um i still have one of those believe <laughs> it or not right uh i prefer the folding ones myself because they they just work really well and they tend to have a foil knife uh built in but i also have an electric one i've seen vacuum ones so i figured i'd talk about these um I recommend doing some research on these and kind of picking whichever one you you want. Uh, Vacuum-type corkscrews are relatively new. Uh, not hyper-new, but relatively new. And the way that those work is that you generally put it over uh, the top of the wine bottle. It creates a seal, and then you pump, 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 pump until the, uh, the cork pops out of the bottle uh, due to, to vacuum pressure. Um, I, I've seen some uh, concerns about potentially creating too much of a vacuum or having issues, and uh, I've never really seen a wine bottle break with these. I feel like the science is pretty much there, um, but the fact that there's it's basically like a big moving piece that you're constantly pumping like a salad spinner, it, it's probably a little bit more volatile than some of the other types, so you, know, you pick. Uh, the, the nice thing about the vacuum ones is that it will pull the cork out pretty much whole every time. You don't have to worry about shattering the, the cork and ending up with pieces of cork floating in your wine. Uh, then there's the, the nice ones, the V corkscrews that you, as you're screwing, the two arms come up 
And then once you're screwed all the way down, you push the arms back down and it pops the cork out. Those are pretty nice, but they do take up a little bit more room. So just something to consider. Uh, I like the folding ones uh, because they, they're small, they're compact. I like how they work. They are the ones that happen to break the cork the most often because you're pulling the cork out at an angle. Uh, so you just want to be careful about that and you know practice a few times. Uh, and then there's the electric ones. Uh, there's a few different kinds of electric ones. I've seen electric vacuum ones, which are a little bonkers to me. Um, but somebody years ago got me an electric one that's literally just the corkscrew. When you put it on the top, you press the button, and it slowly drills the... Uh, the cork out of the bottle. Uh, it's pretty great. It's huge. I mean, it's about the size of a wine bottle itself. So uh, if you're looking to save some space and, and get one that's, you know, a little bit more economy, I wouldn't recommend the electric kind. Uh, generally, with all of these, you're going to want to invest in some sort of foil knife. Uh, that, that This is why I like the folding ones, because they tend to come with a foil knife. Uh, and the foil knife is just a, a very small serrated blade that you use to uh, cut the foil off of the the cork so you can get to the cork a little bit easier. So you get a lot of options there. Uh, for price points, the folding ones or like the old school ones where you, you twist and pull, those are probably going to be your cheapest. Um, and next up is probably going to be your, your V corkscrews and your vacuums and the electric ones are going to be more expensive. So... Pick whichever one you want for your bar. It's always good to have a corkscrew around because I have found some whiskey bottles. It's very rare, but I have seen a whiskey bottle on occasion that has a cork instead of, you know, a screw top or a pull. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it happens very rarely. I think out of all the whiskeys I've reviewed, maybe one or two has had a cork. Like, it's very, very rare. Um, but you, you'll see it occasionally, and it's always good to have a corkscrew around. One fun thing to keep your eyes peeled for, but you got to get good with one of the ones DJ mentioned in the episode before this, is I know the liquor stores around here sell it. I bought a set. You can get a set of two, and when they're closed, when like they're all like not even folded up, but when they're all closed and in like non-transformer mode, they actually look like case not even cases but the old school see i never had contact lenses so i don't even know if this is still a thing but how you used to have like the two little pods that you put your contacts in at night yeah they look like those and then what you do is you unscrew the one end and you pull it out and you put it through a hole on the other end and it turns into it's for a purse it turns into a, a twist and pull out corkscrew yeah it's not even like an you know three inches by three inches but the fun thing is i found out the one end is fat because it doesn't have a foil knife or anything. So if you do it right, you could lay it on the top of the bottle with the edge of the cork and roll it around and it'll cut out the foil. <laughs> you have to practice. You got to get good with it, but you can do it. Yeah. Yeah, corkscrews are cool. It's definitely a skill to to use them if you haven't ever used them before. Uh, it can be a little bit intimidating. The one thing I will say about corkscrews and I, this is just kind of an extra tool of the trade for you. Champagne bottles. <laughs> uh, I have never met a champagne bottle that you needed a corkscrew for. Uh, they almost universally have a metal cage around them and then a big bulbous cork. And the one tip I will give 
everybody listening for free is that when you go to open uh, a champagne bottle, do not pay attention to a single damn movie you've ever seen. <laughs> Don't pop the cork off. It's so dangerous and it wastes so much champagne. So when you do it, get a good, like, I, and I even, these days I have a, a small towel that I wrap around the cork and then you twist the bottle while holding the cork steady. And it's the best way to open a, uh, a champagne bottle. You don't have it go flying everywhere. You don't have champagne pouring out of the bottle. You just, you get the very careful, slow pressure till you hear the pop, pull the cork away, pour your champagne. Um, you do not need a corkscrew for a champagne, but you do want to be careful. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an important safety tip. I, I'm not as anti-popping a cork as DJ just because I come from a racing background and so I mean there is a time and a place for everything uh, but if you're inside I generally don't recommend doing it um, you know if you've won a major race if you've graduated from college or if you're having a hell of a pool party those are <laughs> the only three things off the top of my head uh, but it is uh, those fuckers go far they do <laughs> I'm just gonna throw that out there uh and, you know, and honestly, there's more of an art form in, you know, how gently you can get it off, how this, you know, slight twist of the wrist and everything. If you have multiple bottles, if you're having a New Year's Eve party or something, if you're all not too bombed up, that's a fun game you could play with other people. Be like, oh, well, let, let's see. Oh, oh, you spilled some. I didn't spill any. OK. Yeah. Yeah. I prefer the challenge of trying not to spill any and trying to get it off without it flying across the room. Uh, and you, you only need to be hit in the back of the head or the eye once before that's no longer a fun game. Well, it's not even that. You just don't, you know, you knock something off the wall, you shatter a freaking glass picture frame across the floor. That kills whatever mood you're trying to set. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, shall we get into it? <laughs> Let's do it. Week three. Week three, Pro Prohibition and Whiskey Part Tray, if we're going uh, in French here. <laughs> and we're actually just going to dabble with Prohibition a little bit, and then we're going to go beyond. Uh, because as we talked about, bootlegging, rum running, uh, rum and shine, however you, whatever time period and parlance you want to use, this basically set up NASCAR as we know it today. And even if you're not necessarily a fan of NASCAR... And as we established on our adult fandoms and whiskeys, I wasn't until relatively recently. It is a decent chunk of American pop culture, especially lately. I mean, it has a multi-billion dollar television deal across two of the big four television networks. Yeah, it has a history spanning from uh, 1947, which we're going to talk about. It, in terms of... In-person attendance, well, pre-COVID, because, of course, COVID has fucked attendance up for everything. But in terms of attendance pre-COVID, it was either number three or number four, depending on what you looked. It was only uh, football and basketball were undisputably ahead of it. And then depending on what numbers you looked at, baseball may have been ahead of it. Uh, and if it wasn't, boom, there's NASCAR right there. So it's huge, and it actually comes right out of Prohibition, and it comes out of running from the law and running this bootleg liquor that we've been talking about. So let's see how this all came about. Now, when you look at NASCAR, you know, we, we were talking about rum running a lot last week. When you look at NASCAR, 
they call it bootlegging. They call it running shine because it was mostly whiskey, corn whiskey especially, uh, and then also moonshine, which I guess moonshine technically is super distilled whiskey, but moonshine's kind of its own its own special thing of just pure grain alcohol. Yeah. Uh, but those those were mostly the things down south. But you know, in the north, you could run champagne from uh, across Canada. You could run rum from the ports. You could run whiskey from the ports. Uh, so we're going to use the terms rum running, bootlegging, moonshining. We're going to use, I'm going to chop and change. It's just, even in my notes here, I, I keep jumping back and forth. But it all means the same thing for our purposes. As we talked about last week, you would come across the border. We have that huge land border with Canada that's not really defended. Uh, or you'd go to port. You would pick up the crates in Philadelphia or Boston or Baltimore or Charleston or wherever the fuck you were. And then you're going to run them overland. This is, we've gotten them into port now. We talked about it last week. Now we're going overland. And this is prohibition. This is pre-World War II. Eisenhower hasn't gone to Germany yet and seen the Autobahn. So we haven't started work on the interstate system yet. Uh, most of the big interstate travel was still by railroad in a lot of places. So you have dirt roads. You have these windy, narrow, rutted mountain passes in a lot of places. Side roads, things that aren't even on maps. And the idea was simple. Get from point A to point B quickly, but safely. Uh, you don't want to break your cargo. And also discreetly. You don't want to bring the heat down on everyone. Mm. And this went well, well, well after Prohibition. This kept carrying on into the 50s, uh, even late 50s in some places, especially in Appalachia, and the southern United States. Remember, we were talking about dry counties. The entire state of Mississippi was still dry. Uh, as my uh, friend of the show, uh, Jerry Dudick, told me over the weekend, I forgot all about it. Lynchburg, Tennessee is still dry to this day, where really? the Jack Daniels distillery is. That's if you, bonkers. Yeah. If you take a tour of the Jack Daniels distillery, at the end of the tour, they give you an ice-cold glass of lemonade. <laughs> and he's and I had known that, and I forgot completely about it. So you know this this carried on well past prohibition. <clears throat> so now the main thing, of course, is your car. Your you know because we're we're not running rum in trucks here. We're not you know doing all this. Some people did. You had the big box trucks. You see the pictures in the twenties, but they got pulled over. They got busted. They weren't all. They were too subtle. You know. Oh, we're gonna hide in plain sight. No, you can't get out of your own way. So to do that, you're gonna set up a car. Well, you don't want a big flashy thing. You know, if you were going to do this today, you wouldn't want to show up in a Ferrari or an Aston Martin or anything. You want a nondescript beater, a nothing car, you know, a Ford Focus or a Toyota Corolla or something, if we're doing it in today's parlance. If it has rougher paint, if some of the body panels are beat up, if it's, you know, missing a headlight or something, that's even better. You don't want it to look like anything. But as we said, the roads were just absolute shit. So you got to beef up your suspension. And it's not even so much for handling at this point because, I mean, American cars don't really handle to begin with. Believe me, I know. I've driven pretty much all of them. But especially back then. So you're beefing up your springs, your, your shocks, your, you're putting in sway bars, putting in uh, heavier-duty brakes as much as you can for drum brakes at the time. And this was all just to survive these muddy, rut-driven roads. And... It also was to beef up the underside of the car because you're going to be bouncing around. You're going to be hitting potholes fast. You're also going to be carrying numerous gallons of hooch, which weighs a ton. 
So you're going to be putting a lot of extra stress on the suspension. So you got to beef that the hell up. Likewise, you don't want to add too much weight and you're going to be putting all that liquid weight in there. Get rid of the passenger seat. Get rid of any type of interior paneling. You know, the windows don't need to go up and down. You don't need door pulls. You don't need carpets. You don't need any of this stuff. This will give you more room for cases of booze, and it'll keep the weight somewhat, you know, decent. You pull out a couple of seats, you can get a few more cases of hooch in there, and it's going to be about 50-50. You'll often see times, and the best example is if if, uh, it takes place much later. I think it's supposed to be set in the 60s, if I remember right. But watch the Burt Reynolds movie, White Lightning. He's a, a moonshiner in that movie. It's a fantastic movie. But they outfit his car with an extra tank, sort of in the trunk. And so he wasn't actually running cases of the stuff like you'd see in the Dukes of Hazard or anything. They would actually just fill up a giant tank with moonshine. I love that. And, and this was somewhat common, not as common, but it was somewhat common. And oftentimes they would rig a trap door. So if you were being chased and you didn't think you can get away, you could pull a Han Solo and dump your cargo. And then even if they catch you, well, there's nothing here, officer. I was just, I was scared. I was just running. I don't know. <laughs> now, when you talk about the, whenever you get into this, you know, the sort of dump tanks and the drop tanks and things, you'll often see stories of just insanely modified moonshine cars in the, the 40s and the 50s that had all these James Bond style gadgets on them, like smoke screens and, you know, things that drop tax and everything. Most of it's bullshit. Uh, the best I could see is a few guys actually played with rigging up some form of an oil can over the exhaust system so that when you hit a lever, it would dump oil onto the hot exhaust and it would create smoke like you're burning oil. Mm. There were numerous problems with this. Number one being oil fires. <laughs> Number two, it being going off when you didn't want it to in the heat of a chase, blah, 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 blah. So that was only played with at best. Any stories you hear about thumbtacks and things, that was mostly if you had a passenger, he was out throwing tacks behind you. (laughs) Just, you know, go, DJ, go, I got this, and just dump a box of tacks out the window. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it it was more subtle than that. You'd put some sort of protective screen over the radiator, thin metal or mesh, you know, you don't want any rocks puncturing that, because that, a flat tire, which most of the time you were running truck tires, a flat tire or a busted radiator are pretty much the only two things that would bring you down if you did it right. Mm-hmm. And then rarely, but sometimes you'd put a heavier duty front bumper on it just in case you got to move somebody out of the way. But you don't really want to hit too hard because, again, where's your radiator? It's in the front of the car. That's about it. <laughs> These were your setups. We'll talk about engines in a little bit. But from a chassis perspective, that this is about it. And if you look at it, it's the setup for what became... The American muscle car. Oh, fair. A nondescript middle size car that will throw a few suspension upgrades on, a few uh, brake upgrades on. It'll still be cheap and cheerful. It still won't look like a lot. I mean, later on in the 70s, you got the, the garish paint and the stripes and the hood scoops. But when it first started, it was just sort of, here's this Pontiac. We're going to put a really big motor in it and better shocks and go have fun. Uh, bootleggers would most of the time have a personal mechanic and these guys were like ride or die. I mean, it was the way, you know, a racing crew chief would be and they'd be part of the business. They would make the parts because this is all 
new. You didn't have like Summit or Jegs or any place. You couldn't just call up and be like, yeah, I need, uh, you know, a set of coilovers for a 65 Chevelle like you can today. Mm. So these guys would actually design and make their own parts and they would be exclusive most of the time with a single bootlegger. And then they would have a cut of the profits. And this worked really well because as the driver, you knew that they weren't going to leak out the parts to anybody. You had an exclusive relationship, so you had an advantage over your competition. And the mechanic didn't really have to worry. He was part of a criminal enterprise, but at the same time, he really wasn't because he wasn't really handling the moonshine. So it kind of worked for everybody. Very few, but they did exist, independent mechanics showed up that were just sort of like, hey, this is a free market economy. Here's the shit I'm building for a flathead Ford. Anybody that wants it can come and get it. And they slowly became the first speed shops. You know, the first places that you could go and actually get hot rod parts. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, I said we'll talk about the engine Again, in typical American car fashion, in typical muscle car fashion, the engine was the single most important piece to this puzzle. You would get this, you know, beat up jalopy, you'd hop up the brakes, you'd hop up the suspension, and then you would find the biggest, baddest engine you could find, and you'd throw it in. Whether it be out of a Cadillac or a Packard or whatever the big luxury cars were that were putting these massive slabs of metal in. You'd go to a junkyard, you'd find one, you'd pull the motor, you'd stuff it in a Model T or something, and you'd go run and shine. And, I mean, at the end of the day, no matter what uh, discretionary tactics you took, no matter what defensive tactics you took, if you were discovered, you needed to be able to put your foot down and outrun the police. And in 1932, the single greatest weapon for the bootleggers, according to Junior Johnson, who we'll talk about later, was unveiled when Henry Ford gave us the Ford Flathead V8. So just before Prohibition ended. Uh, Doubly ironic because Henry Ford was a insanely rigid teetotaler. Not only did he not drink, but if you worked for him during the $5 day period, you could not drink as an employee of Ford. He hated alcohol. He was very pro-Prohibition. But he gave the... uh, the bootleggers exactly what they needed. The the Ford V8 was the ultimate package. It had plenty of power out of the box. It actually, you could buy a car brand new if you had the money with the Ford V8 in it that could outrun any police car stock. They were incredibly easy to modify. I mean, they still are, dear God. They were relatively cheap because it was a Ford product. Fords were cars for the people. And they were insanely plentiful. They were building them by the millions. If you go to the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit, they have on display a letter written to Henry Ford thanking him for building the Ford V8 and giving hardworking, honest Americans a car that they could stand up to the injustice of the police with. And do you know who sent that letter, DJ? No. Clyde Barrows. (laughs) Of Bonnie and Clyde fame. That's amazing. He had a Ford V8, and he was out running the cops with Bonnie on the sideboard shooting at him. And he said, you know, this is the best damn thing you've ever built. And he wrote Henry Ford a letter. So, uh, I mean, to put it into perspective, the Flathead V8 and a lot of the mods that some of these bootlegger mechanics invented, of course, they're, um, you know, much developed today. But this almost single-handedly created American hot rod culture. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at 
early pictures of street rods and roadsters and things, they all have a flathead in them. You know, multiple carburetors, lakester headers, all this stuff. It really advanced after World War II, but all the seeds were planted here during so, this period. For those of us playing the home game, what does it mean to have a flat head? Uh, okay, it has to do with the valve train. Uh, in that, okay, if you look at a normal car, you either have two types of engines. You either have an overhead camshaft engine where the cams are actually on top of the head and uh, the valves are underneath it and the cam directly works the valves every time it spins. Or you have a what's called a push rod engine where you have a camshaft buried deep inside the block and there's actually these long push rods that go to the top of the heads and they work the valves on top of the heads. A flathead is a totally different design. It's now actually defunct in modern engines. Nobody builds a flathead engine anymore. Mm. But the valve train is actually contained with inside the block. Hmm. So all your valves and your lifters and everything, they're all inside the block. And the head just almost sort of, it, it serves a bit more of a purpose, but without getting too technical, it almost just serves as a cap on top of each side of the motor. And the spark plugs go in through the top of the head. So if you ever see an engine on an old hot rod where it just seems like the sides of the motor are really stubby and don't really go out that much, um, that's a flathead. Oh, okay. Uh, conversely, if we're sticking with the, the muscle car uh, comparisons, if you look at a Chrysler Hemi that has a hemispherical head, they're actually just these huge pieces of iron that are rounded. And so if you look at it, the, the, the sides of the motor, the sides of the block, the heads actually envelop the intake and everything. Basically, if you open the hood, all you see is heads. Wow. So, uh, you know, no, I say no one makes a flathead engine anymore. Nobody makes a new flathead engine anymore. But people to this day are still building and hot rodding flathead V8s from the 30s. <laughs> Um, I, I know a guy, E.J. Kowalski, he just went out to Bonneville Speed Week. He holds the record for a flathead on the salt. He went like 254 miles an hour, something ridiculous, Jesus. with a nitro-powered flathead. And it's, he'll, he will tell you, smiling, it is 1940s technology. He loves it. So it's still a favorite today. Uh, and that all came into being just at the end of Prohibition, 1932. So how does this get into racing? You have all these guys hopping up cars. They're running from the police. They're running whiskey. Where does the racing part come in? Well, car guys are car guys. You know, there's a saying that the very first motor race was held the minute the second car rolled off the assembly line. And it's probably true, if we're being honest. <laughs> if, if you get enough car guys uh, gathered around, especially guys that modify their cars, eventually you're going to be curious to see who's faster. And nine times out of ten, it's not even an ego thing. It's, not even, it's just genuine mechanical curiosity. Friday night, the old man and I, we went to a, a cruise night at a pizza place. We were coming home. It was about 10.30 at night. It was late at night. It was a long, deserted stretch of highway. We were the only cars on the road for miles. So if something happened, we'd be the only idiots that would kill ourselves. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and we just sort of nodded, and we decided to see who was going to take off. It just happens. So you would have these guys that would be in a bar, 
a speakeasy, a garage, whatever, drinking their illegal shine. Ah, well, I just did this to my car. It's going to be, you know, it's going to make this much of a bullshit. You're full of shit. Oh, you want to find out? Let's go. And it wasn't just a matter of pride. It wasn't just a matter of ego. It wasn't just car guys having fun. You genuinely wanted to be faster than your competition. These are the other guys that are running the booze. And if you're the fastest, you're going to get more contracts and you're going to make more money. And, you know, just like today, if you go on YouTube, if you type in street racing, you'll find all these videos of people that should know better running unsanctioned races in public facilities at night. And in a lot of these, there are big crowds. Because especially in America, people in general, but especially in America, we like fast cars. <laughs> and we just want to watch fast cars. So it was no different back then. People would go out at night, oh, DJ's going to run more. They're going to have their car. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're going to go to the past, you know, 10 o'clock at night. They're going to go out. They're going to run. And these crowds would show up. So it didn't take very long that, you know, promoters, there's, there's circus promoters. There's one born every minute, as P.T. Barlam is misquoted as saying. Somebody said, wait a minute, we can make a lot of money here. So people started sanctioning races at fairgrounds, at horse race tracks, at just these big facilities that they had. And that's where you started to get these quote-unquote stock car races, which we still call them today. And, you know, there's the, the famous line in Days of Thunder, there ain't nothing stock about a stock car, boy. <laughs> well, back in the day, there was. A stock car literally was a car you could buy off the lot that, Joe Blow hot rotted up in his garage. That was where the term stock car originally came oh, from. Oh, interesting. I thought it was like patent medicines where there weren't really any <laughs> patents for them. <laughs> no, they, they actually did start off as stock. Um, one, one of the earliest divisions of NASCAR was entitled street stock. Like this is a car that you could find on the street as it sits and we're going to race them. So these races started to take off, and they started to become popular. In 1938, the first major stock car race, the way we would think of it today, uh, was held at a speedway in Atlanta in front of just over 20,000 individuals. And it was won by a man named Lloyd Says, Says, S-E-A-Y-S, and he was a homeboy. He was a, a... champion of northern Georgia, a man of the people, because many of those 20,000 people sitting in the stands outside of Atlanta had their hooch delivered to them by Lloyd Sees. <laughs> he was a well-known bootlegger, and he was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they loved him. <clears throat> yeah, three years later, in 1941, the first championship series of races for stock cars was held, and the championship was run by Roy Hall, who was a notorious moonshiner who had his license revoked no less than 16 times for running from the police. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, In fact, after the war in 1945, they were trying to get races back going again because rubber rationing wasn't really going on anymore. Gas rationing wasn't going on anymore. So they were trying to get the races going. And they were, I don't know how, the event did happen. But I don't know. The story goes they were actually in their cars in the pits and the police came out and they arrested Roy Hall because a few nights prior to that, he was running booze and they didn't catch him. And they said, oh, he's running at this race on Sunday. So they actually went down there. They went on the track before the race started. They arrested him. A riot happened. People left the stands. They ran out onto the track. They had to bring out the they didn't have riot police, but the equivalent back then and clear the track. 
Uh, now, actually, a few years prior to this, in the late 30s, a man named Raymond Mays was created with, is credited with creating the first formalized, full-time, professional auto racing team in the United States. Now, this was a thing that had existed in Europe for years prior to this, but it was a first in America that that was all these guys did. They didn't have day jobs. They didn't run a gas station and work on the race car during the, you know, the weekends or whatever. They just went to a shop and built race cars, mm. and, and that was unheard of. Uh, Mays was, at one time, the single most wanted bootlegger in both of the Carolinas. He ran away from home at the ripe old age of 14 to work a still. Then he eventually got to driving a few years later. Then he eventually became the kingpin and ran the entire distribution operation. Uh, the racing team was another cog in his machine. He owned a race team. He owned a series of uh, garages, gas stations, service stations. And he also owned a couple of used car lots. And they were all money laundering operations for his bootlegging. <laughs> so in 1947, Big Bill France finally wrestled control from all these little dinky independent stock car promoters. And he created the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, or as we know it today, NASCAR. And the first two champions, the first two championships in 1947 and 1948 were won by a driver named Red Byron, who was driving for the team owned by Raymond Mays, said money laundering bootlegger. <laughs> Mays actually helped fund NASCAR until 1951 because it was... Uh, down on its luck, uh, money-wise. Uh, later on, as it got into the 50s and it got a little bit more popular, they tried to distance themselves from this moonshining uh, history. Even today, they don't like to talk about it at all. You know, they're, they're trying to shake the stereotype of the southern hick that likes to drink moonshine and sit in a field and watch cars turn left. But there was one person that carried on the tradition. He sadly passed away. But uh, NASCAR Hall of Famer Junior Johnson, one of my favorite guys of all time, he remained in the sport in one form or another all the way until 2011. He was a driver, then he was a mechanic, then he was a team owner, then he was sort of an ambassador. But he remained in the public eye until 2011. He actually served over a year in prison from a number of bootlegging-related felonies in 1956 and 1957. And he became so popular as a driver that in the 80s, he actually received a presidential pardon from Ronald Reagan. Of course. But that was actually very important because that allowed him to vote again. Because remember, in certain states, felons cannot vote. Oh, that's and, true. And uh, Junior Johnson lived in what I believe he lived in South Carolina. I'd have to double check what state. But he lived in one of the states where you could not vote. So for about 30 years, he was unable to vote until he received that pardon. But yeah, so that's that. That's how bootlegging and prohibition led into NASCAR. Uh, it, it's still kind of fun to think about, you know, just hopping up, uh, hopping up cars and going racing out dirt and running from the cops. It was a lot different that back then. I, I will just close on this. Take it from someone who has experience in this, and I'll leave it at that. It's actually pretty easy to outrun a cop car. Yeah, it's it's really hard to outrun a radio. Yeah. <laughs> And that is the biggest difference between now and then. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> but all right, take us into the cocktails for this era. Something better than this damn gin, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So uh, I did a little bit of kind of research on uh, on some history here that I think can kind of tie up our, our thoughts on prohibition here. And, and you can let me know if you disagree with any of this. Uh, but I, I did kind of a pros and cons of, of prohibition actually having happened. Okay. And the cons as I see it, you know, we know that during the 13 years of prohibition, we lost thousands of distilleries and breweries. Like we just, we lost some American tradition. Yep. Um, so, and, and a lot of those never came back. You know, even some of the stuff that you see is like, this is a prohibition era rye. Well, it's probably not. Uh, we lost a lot. I mean, of rice beer. That was never a thing before prohibition. Now there's a lot of beers that are made with rice, but yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. No, no, it's good. Um, we there was a loss of a lot of the aged stock, right? Like you know, we we had oh. aged whiskeys and aged this, and yeah, we had wine, and we a lot of it was just literally like the barrels were cracked open and dumped into the soil. Like we just we lost a ton of stock that we'll never be able to get back. Um, we lost a fair amount of American bartending knowledge. You know, some of it. We got to keep underground and in like you know moonshining and bathtub gin and stuff like that, but that's not a great legacy to have, right? Um, it's not ideal. It's not. It's not wonderful. You know, I, I I enjoy some Kentucky Thunder every now and then, but it's not. It's not exactly whiskey. Um, and and we lost a, a lot of really good talent too. You know, I, we talked last week about how bartenders fled the country uh, to continue their work. A lot of them didn't come back. Uh, so we just had a lot of loss of knowledge, loss of history. Uh, the Because of the nasty rot gut shit we were drinking during Prohibition, uh, the, the return to a good balanced cocktail took time. Uh, there was such a huge overcorrection of adding just whatever the hell you could find to make something taste good that it took decades for cocktails to be well balanced again. Uh, and ultimately, as a country, I'm going to make a little bit of a political statement here that I feel fairly confident in making. We completely avoided the root cause of all of the problems that were happening in our country that alcohol was masking. You don't say. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think now that we're, we're you know, it, it's 2021 and the ability to have good, solid healthy conversations about mental health and addiction and uh, abuse and family trauma and all of these things that alcohol was a crutch for and an easy scapegoat. We're able to have these conversations today, but we went 13 years in this country without really talking about what the real problem was. You know, I, uh, I, I imagine if we went and looked it up, I, I imagine that there, there was a rise of drug use when there wasn't any alcohol to stem you know, to kind of be there for people to get drunk on. And we never really had that conversation about like, what is addiction? Why are, why is alcohol is such a big deal? Why is it everywhere? Why are there so many people who just keep drinking and, and, you know, die of alcohol poisoning or beat their families or like we, we were missing, we were missing that there were real problems. And nowadays we know that there's mental health and that addiction is a disease and there's lots of good, healthy conversations that we need to still keep having. But for 13 years, we went, that's nothing. Let's just get rid of alcohol. 
Yeah, there were it, when I was doing the research for especially part one. When you look at some of the, and admittedly it's propaganda, but when you look at some of the promotional flyers and booklets and things for those am, anti-temperance societies, some of them, at the very least, genuinely believed, okay, we're going to pass this amendment, and then tomorrow the world is fine. Yeah. I mean, some of them knew it was a little bit deeper than that, but some of these smaller temperance societies were just like, no, this is literally the root of all of our problems. Yeah. And, and it, it it wasn't, right? You know, we, no. we had problems <laughs> in our society. But the pros of prohibition, you know, it, it was not a great time, but it did have some really interesting and, and long-lasting cultural impacts. You, we're going to keep talking about prohibition we're not going to do more episodes on it anytime soon, but anytime we talk about cocktail history, uh, I think at some point I want to do an episode on like the rise of tiki bar culture. You can't talk about the rise of tiki bars without talking about prohibition because uh, with prohibition, we weren't allowed to make liquor in this country that was safe or aged or anything. So we saw the rise of imported liquor popularity tequila was a, it was easy to get across the mexican border so it was a huge boom in tequila popularity uh from our neighbors in the north we got canadian whiskey with no e uh and and that kind of rose in popularity and from which i think we've all started on a good canadian i mean i, I drank windsor uh, in high school so shout out to our friends up north exactly and then, you know, from the docks, we brought in imported whiskeys. We brought in uh, vodka, but we also brought in uh, Caribbean rum. So much rum. Th- this country has an obsession with rum and tequila today because of prohibition. Well, it, it's interesting because in a lot of ways that was uh, sort of riding the wrong. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here. But prior to the revolution, we were a rum country. Mm-hmm. And then with the sugar tax that the English put on us, that sort of really killed that. So prohibition and post-prohibition, that was sort of bringing us back to where we had started, which was kind of fun. Yeah. And, you know, Mark and I like to talk a big game here and talk about, oh, prohibition, it killed cocktail culture. It actually caused a huge boom in cocktail culture once we got through... uh, the Great Depression, once we got through World War II, we see yes. a huge rise in cocktail culture directly because of Prohibition. Because there was such a huge boom after Prohibition to bring it back into our culture, to start those distilleries back up. Now, granted, World War One, World War II, we definitely had, you know, factories that were churning out other things other than, um, you know, liquor. But once we got through the, the Great Wars, there was alcohol again. And, and through the you know World War One, World War II as well. But it, we'd see a huge boom in cocktail culture coming out of Prohibition that slowly builds into a huge explosion after World War II. And the biggest benefit for me, and, and Mark, you can attest to this too, it was the rise of acceptance for women in drinking culture. Yeah. It was huge, right? Like, it, prohibition killed the the old saloon culture of women aren't allowed in bars. Now, not to say that prohibition solved sexism in this country, because that is still a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, 
the flappers were allowed to drink because they were being sexualized in other ways, but it was mm. baby steps. <laughs> it was, and it did. Now, women still deal with sexism today. I'm, I'm not going to say we've solved that problem, but it did. No. It, it, it definitely did eliminate the, the mindset that only men can drink recreationally, that women just kind of... Maybe they'll have a tuppence of something at a house party. No, that 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 was gone, and it it started this country down a very painful road of women's suffrage. But you know, we were able to ex- start accepting that women enjoy relaxing as well. Uh, the other thing that I found really interesting is that with prohibition, there were thirteen years of no real official alcohol imports in this country. So the Caribbean just got this huge, like, buildup of aging rum that as soon as Prohibition was done, flooded into this country. And we, we, we had a lot of aged rum. There's a lot of cocktails that use aged rum in the 50s and 60s because, I mean, it gave rise to tiki culture and... I, that's going to be a season four episode because I'm fascinated by like beachcombers and, and tiki culture. That's that's its own thing. And we'll, we'll talk, we'll pay respect to the, the cultural appropriation there while talking about its effect on cocktail culture. But the idea of like the Caribbean had 13 years to make aged rum and they didn't sell a whole lot of it to the U.S. Yeah. You know, and you kind of saw that on a much smaller scale. Uh, what was it about seven years ago now, when Obama briefly opened Cuba again? Yeah, Cuban cigars were everywhere for like a month. Yep, and then it was like, nope, okay, we can't trade with them anymore again. <laughs> but just imagine that on a, a it, they didn't stop it like on yeah. a much bigger scale. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why rum is one of the most popular liquors for a great long time, like 60s, 70s, 80s, rum, 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 rum's everywhere. Um, So I did track down some post-prohibition cocktail books. Uh, I picked three that were published in the U.S., and I bought the first two. Uh, I didn't go for, like, you know, antique versions. I, I just bought new reprinted facsimiles. But the first one... Uh, it was published in 1935. It was written by a guy named Albert Stevens Crocker, Crockett, uh, sometimes credited as A.S. Crockett. And it's the old Waldorf Astoria bar book. Just think, if you buy this book, ladies and gentlemen, you can make some of the cocktails that the Marx Brothers drank. Right? Because they hung out at the Waldorf quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just, I mean, a super famous place, a super, super awesome cocktail book. And uh, the book... Uh, was reprinted. This is the third reprint of the old Waldorf Astoria bar book. And it actually, in the title page, has this, the phrase, with amendments due to the repeal of the 18th. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the, the, there's like a, a, a nice quote at the beginning of this book that I really feel kind of sums up what, what drinking culture should be about. It shouldn't really be about binge drinking and drinking to excess and getting drunk and blacking out really should be about this. Now, pardon the, the slightly gendered assumption here, but, uh, 
in the, the, the quote for the book is recalling certain gentlemen of other days who made of drinking one of the pleasures of life, not one of its evils, who achieved content long ere capacity was reached or overtaxed, and who, whatever they drank, proved able to carry it, keep their heads and remain gentlemen, even in their cups. Their example is commended to their posterity. I like that. I love it so much. I want to find this, frame it, and put it up on the wall of my bar eventually. And it's just the idea of, like, guys, we don't need to go crazy here. Drinking culture doesn't need to be about excess. It can be about relaxing and the culture of it and enjoying a drink with a friend. Let's shoot the shit and, you know, have a Manhattan and... God damn it, then, you know, we'll all go home still as friends. Exactly. So the cocktail I pulled out of the old Waldorf Astoria bar book uh, is called The Goat's Delight. I don't love that nearly as much as the quote. <laughs> I'm just going to stop you right there before you even get into it. Uh, and the the ingredients are one half Kirschwasser, one Gesundheit. half brandy, one dash of Orgeat syrup, one spoon of cream, and one dash of absinthe. As to who was the original goat cheered by this cup, records are at least vague. <laughs> Which just makes me really happy. Because they knew, like, they're, they're sitting down in 1935 and they're writing this. And they're like, some smart ass is going to ask us who this goat is. <laughs> I love that it's half Kirsch and half Brandy with cream. I don't want any of that. I want to try this so bad, and I actually have some cherry liqueur going in the basement, so I'll be trying this later. I mean, okay, we're going to throw in your brandy. You're going to throw in your kirsch. We're going to throw in syrup. And then you have the cream, and then when you're sitting there like, oh, it's like, oh, don't worry. It gets better. We're going to put absinthe on top of it. It's like, wait, what? (laughs) Why the fuck not? You know, my, my late uncle used to have a saying if you got really tuned up, he'd say, you better slow down or you're going to see monkey shaving goats. Maybe this is the goat you're going to see. Right. I I, I never thought about it until now. So this one's great. You can get this one on Amazon, I think, for like 15 bucks to get a facsimile. The the cocktail recipes are great. Um, The measurements take some getting used to. I think it's one half of a jigger, so it would be an ounce each of uh, Kirsch and Brandy. The next book that I got uh, that, that I pulled out was The Gentleman's Companion, Volume 2, Being an Exotic Drinking Book or Around the World with Jigger, Beaker, and Flask. So what you're telling me is in a previous life, you went back to the 30s and wrote this fucking book. I think that is amazing. a U title. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, it was written by a guy named Charles H. Baker Jr., uh, it was published in 1939. There was a volume one. And it's all about him traveling around the world, learning about weird cocktails, writing them down, capturing recipes. Every cocktail recipe has a little story about how he found it. And it's not written out as a recipe. It's written out as like a paragraph. So uh, the cocktail I grabbed is called Furpo's Balloon Cocktail, the Calcutta Classic. All right, so we're in India. Uh, To one jigger of really good rye whiskey, add the same of Italian vermouth and absinthe, substituting Paranod Veritas lacking the true wormwood spirit. Now donate two dashes of orange bitters or Angostura if preferred, 
and one and a half to two teaspoons of egg white. Shake well, serve in a big saucer-type champagne glass. This is another one to watch cannily, lest our petal extremities fold up at some totally inappropriate <laughs> moment. Boy, you're going to get fucked up on this. <laughs> I love that so much. But I do think it's insane because a jigger is two ounces. So this is two yep. ounces of whiskey, two ounces of uh, sweet vermouth, and two ounces of absinthe. Yeah. And, and then we're going to throw in some bitters and, and some egg white. Basically, take your Manhattan, take your true whiskey sour with your egg white, smash the two of them together, throw two ounces of absinthe on top. They're putting an absinthe in fucking everything yeah, back in I, the day. I, absinthe was so much more popular. Uh, the last, oh, and I did pick this up. You can get it on Amazon for 30 bucks and it contains both volume one and volume two. So check that out. Yeah. Uh, the stork club bar book, uh, by Lucius Beebe, uh, from 1946. Uh, so this is well past. This is 13 years after prohibition ends. This cocktail book still has the fucking blue blazer in it. Settle down. <laughs> I want to make the blue blazer so bad, Mark. I I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be good, right? It lasted this long in cocktail culture. Eh, that's fair, actually. Um, I did pull out uh, from this cocktail book hot buttered rum. And this is the first time I have seen hot buttered rum in a cocktail book. Uh, I I have it in a couple of modern cocktail books, but I mean, this is like 80 years before any of those. Uh, an ounce and a half of Jamaican rum, one lump of sugar, one small slice of butter, four cloves. Use an old fashioned glass or mug filled with boiling water and stir. I think I would try that, but you'd have to make it as a shot. <laughs> I don't think I'd want it in a mug. Um, you know, just give give me a shot. It could even be a double. Give me two fingers of that. I think I would try it. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. The the, the butter. But I the the cool thing about um, the the Stork Club Bar Book is this is where we really first start seeing cocktail books have standard measurements. Right now. One lump, one small slice, that means nothing. But it, this one did refer to ounces instead of, you know, a, a tipple of this and a topple of that and a jigger of whatever. Star Club was in L.A., right? Uh, I, I think so. I think it was California at the very least. So that's cool. You can get East and West. Get the yeah. Waldorf and then get the Stork book. You can get East and West. Yeah. So definitely check out some of these classic cocktail books. I, I didn't pick up a copy of the Stork Club um, but the gentleman's companion and uh, the Waldorf Astoria bar book are both definitely out there on Amazon. I I'm I'm finding that I really love old cocktail books, man. I've noticed <laughs> they're really fun, and your enthusiasm is slightly rubbing off on me. I did order the Bon Vivant's companion back from episode one, so nice. I figured as a historian, I needed the first one exactly. <laughs> but that wraps up our three parter on prohibition, buddy. Oh, my God. What a three weeks it's been. <laughs> I know. I, th- I think we need a schwitz. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
But listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us with these uh, three episodes of Prohibition. It's the first time we've ever done a three-parter, but we figured this was one of the more important historical times for us to be talking about. Uh, Mark will probably disagree because he he's he's champing at the bit to do ancient Rome, so that well, that may be a whole season. No, I mean here's the thing, you know, you're, you're being facetious there, but I mean obviously if you take out major worldwide events, World War One, World War Two, you know, events like that, and you just focus on things from a domestic point of view. Prohibition is top five in importance for American history. Oh, yeah. Um, because it set up so many different things. I mean, economically, politically, culturally, I mean, it, the ripple effect was being felt well into the 70s and even beyond. Uh, the direct ripple effect, not even talking about, you know, second and third generation. So, no, this this was so important. It had to be three parts. It could have easily been four or five. I mean, there's just so fucking much on Prohibition. But we want you to come back at some point. Yes. So we're only going to do three. <laughs> we could talk about this forever, honestly. But, um, again, thank you for listening. Uh, if you are liking what you're hearing and you want to hear what we do next, uh, feel free to go ahead and pre-save us on whatever podcasting podcatcher platform you use. Uh, we're out there on iTunes. We're out there on Spotify. We're out there on Podbean and Listen Notes. We're in like 30 different places. Uh, if you, you really like us, uh, feel free to give us that rating on iTunes. That, that definitely helps us out. Uh, we are online. Uh, we're, we've got a website, the witandwhiskeycast.com. Uh, since we're about to wrap up a season here, we're going to be putting out some blog posts. We're going to be publishing out some of our cocktail pictures on the website. So that'll be a good place to catch up with us. Uh, we are at Gmail, uh, the cast at gmail.com. There is an E in whiskey and no H in wit. Uh, so check us out. Recommend some whiskeys. Tell us about topics you want us to talk about. Uh, we're coming up on the end of season three here, so uh, we'll, we'll be looking for topics for season four and planning that out pretty soon. Uh, speaking of which, Mark, what are we doing next week? Well, I think we all need a little bit of a breather after three heavy Prohibition episodes. And we've only got one episode left in the season, can you believe it or not? <laughs> So we're going to have a little fun. We're going to do some bar trivia and literally bar trivia, cocktail trivia, whiskey trivia, just fun little factoids you may or may not know that are going to win you a lot of pub bets coming up. <laughs> we hope. We hope. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That'll be a great way to, to close out season three. Uh, we, of course, want to thank Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. We're sending you over to a SoundCloud in our show notes. And I hear there might be another book soon, so keep an eye on Amazon for that. Ooh. But until next week, cheers. Salut. And salut to our three new listeners in Canada. I have all the data. Yeah, I know where you are. Thank you for tiding us over with your whiskey. Yes, we love a good Canadian. <laughs>